I'm here with Hugh McGuire, and Hugh, we're going to have to go through your background, if that's all right. Sure. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Now, we met years ago, I think, because I was doing some reading for a company or an organization that you set up called LibreVox. I was reading for a volunteer, reading uh, newscasts. So perhaps we could start with that. What is LibreVox? LibreVox is a web-based community, and its objective is to get volunteers to make audio recordings of public domain texts and give them away for free on the internet. It's been around since 2005 it started, and over the course of however many years that is, more than I care to recall, published probably in the order of 11 or 12,000, I haven't checked the latest data, audiobooks, about half of them are single readers reading a whole book, and then the other half are collections of people contributing bits and bobs of a, of a text, probably mostly in English. I think there's maybe 30 or so languages represented there on LibriVox. And it's uh, been a very s- stable sort of community. Uh, there's only, despite the huge amount of audio that's been produced there, it's not millions of people. There's probably over the course of the project, there's maybe been 10,000 people participating, but um, some very dedicated people who've been at it for, for many, many years. Right. So it's, it's, it's a laudable effort that uses the internet for a purpose that helps everyone and doesn't cost anything. Yeah. Well, we were talking on the way to this interview <clears throat> about the ideals of the early web Um, and I think LibriVox to me still represents that notion that with a kind of collection of new technologies, web connection and a concept of open content, whether that be public domain or creative commons, that uh, you can get people to work together to do really interesting things without money being the driving uh, force behind it. And so I think I've been interested in those two kinds of, or that concept of how you get people to collaborate for reasons, again, that aren't necessarily motivated by money, and how can the web enable these new kinds of collaborations and communities to develop. That'd be one part of my focus over my, I guess, I'd say recent, but over the last decade and a bit, um, career. And then the other part is how can we bring... Uh, the book and bring that sort of culture of the book, I guess, onto the web in a way that isn't just selling books. So, you know, those are the two pieces that I've been very excited about, how technology can enable communities and collaboration and how technology can enable doing things differently with the book. Right. Which is what primarily we're interested in here. Another project that you're behind is is called Pressbooks? Pressbooks, yeah. Okay, so how does that work? So, um, I guess coming out of LibriVox, I had this notion that there was a model for publishing audiobooks that was different and weird and non-commercial and collaborative, etc. And it, it seemed to me that the web could also be enabling new models for publishing books. And Pressbooks is... Um, online uh, software, online platform that makes it relatively easy to publish both ebooks, books that go into PDF so they're formatted to go into print, and web versions of all those books if you want 
a web version of your book. This the is I, for free? Uh, well, part of it is for free. So it's open source software. There is uh, pressbooks.com that you can use. There is a cost for various things. You can do some things for free. If you want the PDF to go into print, that costs you 99 bucks. And actually where Pressbooks is being used mostly now, there's still a good collection of self-publishers and very small presses that use Pressbooks. A couple of academic presses that do things, but where it's being embraced largely is in higher ed, where there is a movement towards open textbooks, so faculty-developed textbooks which are free and openly licensed. So, in fact, the exact purpose that Pressbooks was invented for, which was to help different models of publishing, not just self-publishing, which is uh, it does help with, but to help drive a new model of, of publishing books without knowing what those would be. Um, it actually has come to pass, which was a great relief that uh, it's being used in this open textbook, open academic publishing space. And that's really in the last couple of years where that's been embraced and, and grown. So that brings us to Rebus Foundation, which is something you're running right now. Yeah. Right, so the Rebus Foundation, I think broadly is probably where everything is going to end up. Currently, Pressbooks is a separate entity, but we've been talking about how to articulate exactly what we're trying to do. And what we're trying to do is build, rebuild the publishing ecosystem, but on open web principles. And so there are two pieces of that. One is taking a model similar to LibriVox and applying that to the process of making open textbooks, so helping build a web-based collaboration environment where different people who might be contributing, let's say, to a biology open textbook can work together and, and manage that process. And then the other piece is actually thinking about what happens when these books are published, how are people reading them and consuming them. Yeah. And so we have a new project, which is to develop an open reading platform. So you might imagine that as something like the Kindle reading platform if it were open source and built on, on the web rather than in a closed system like like the Kindle reading system. Okay. And where I guess the insight behind Rebus was that while the broader culture, I mean, publishing is already a hard place to make a living, and in the broader publishing culture, there's not a whole lot of enthusiasm for these ideas, but where there was enthusiasm is in academia, where I think a lot of the values are shared, academia and academic libraries. So um, that's the, the place where we're doing our work with Rebus. But, but I think I see Rebus as sort of, again, taking on the shape of, of this overarching desire to help build the open infrastructure and open uh, ecosystem for publishing. Um, that doesn't necessarily replace what exists, but allows different kinds of publishing to emerge. So, uh, there's the famous story of uh, that economics textbook that we all had to read. Lipset, I think it was. And I think he was from Queens. We both went to Queens. Yeah. He, he made millions off it. So, don't people who write textbooks, uh, professors, want to make money off this? I think everyone wants to, not very many people do. The one that I'm familiar with is the um, Fundamentals of Calculus and that similar story. The, so if you look at academic publishing is this weird space in publishing broadly where the profits, and I don't know the exact numbers, but the, the cost of textbooks have been going up at a rate far greater than most other asset classes in the universe, including housing in Toronto. 
So fast. Fast. Uh, and this is sort of since the 70s, so it's gone up 12-fold or something like that. Um, so it really so harms the student. That's right. And it actually, the textbook industry is having a problem where people are not buying the textbook, so they're finding either pirated versions or whatever it is. But uh, my thermodynamics textbook from university that was $150 back in the mid-90s, which seemed outrageous to me then, is now $350. So... Um, so the answer is people may want to make money, but there's one or two who do, and the rest don't tend to make an awful lot. Right. Uh, but there's a broader question around access to education, around also just this, the information efficiency of having a process where uh, books are as kind of closed down as they are in the traditional publishing ecosystem. And finally, at the end of the day, does that make a better product for the students and the data around these open textbooks is that students learn as well or their outcomes are as good or better um, with open textbooks than they are with the traditional textbooks. So the purpose, our purpose in life isn't necessarily to um, put textbook makers out of business and make sure that no one's getting royalties, but at the same time, I think the world overall benefits more broadly if uh, it's easier to get information about how to be a good mechanical engineer uh, without having to pay 350 bucks per course on top of whatever else you're you're paying. And it makes a lot of sense, I think, if we can get the model right to to build content in this way. And what it what do you mean by build content? I mean like several professors working together on the same on the same text? Yes. Yeah. So that can be the case. We've had different types of projects we've worked with. So in some cases, it's a project where someone says, I want to build a, for instance, we're doing an introduction to philosophy textbook. Right. And that has, I think, 50 different contributors who are all... What, they each write a chapter or something? Each write a chapter. They have a number of parts, and there are part editors for each part. And that is the most chaotic and open of the open projects we're working on. And then in other cases, there's someone who just wrote a textbook and is publishing it themselves and where we help is more around organizing the collaborations that happen on peer review and and what happens once this book is finished and where does it go and how does it get there and um, how do we help fulfill some of those other functions that a traditional publisher would do which is how do we get this into classrooms how do we make sure people know about it etc so so my interest really is engaging in different models that you know in some ways this might not work for all kinds of content but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I met a, um, a professor of ecology at McGill University, and he has a textbook that he's writing, and he spoke to a large publisher of textbooks who said, oh, we'd like to publish this. We think we'll charge $250 for this textbook. And he said, well, there's probably only 200 students in the world who care about this. And they said, oh, in that case, we are going to have to charge $350 for this textbook. And you think about, you know, what's he going to get out of that? Probably nothing. You know, most people who are writing books, the sad fact is most don't get much from the publishers. Yeah. And we've set up these systems so that commercial entities are there and extract what value there is. Not much of that's going back to the, to the authors. And we don't need to do it that way. That doesn't mean that 
there isn't going to be space to be continuing to do that in, in various subjects or whatever, but it certainly doesn't need to be the model that we use. At the end of the day, the faculty, most of the faculty, the main writers on open textbook projects are getting paid in some way by a grant or something like that. They're just not taking longer-term royalties on it. So. Right, okay. So that's what you mean by rebuilding the publishing ecosystem? Yeah, that, that's part of it, but again, I mean, we see, so that's sort of, if you like, the Rebus, um, what we call Rebus community is kind of the editorial publishing space, so the, the, the place where, you know, a typical publishing house would have a bunch of functions and Rebus is trying to solve some of those in an open ecosystem kind of way. Pressbooks is an open platform where you can publish the outputs, the formatting. Mm -hmm. um, so the design and the layout and the... Yeah, yeah and the typesetting. Typesetting. Yeah. And then the reading system is is that other end of the spectrum and there's a piece in the middle. What do you mean the reading system? So the, the new project we have um, funded, which is an open reading platform, sort of taking on the Kindle part of the, of the okay. ecosystem. Right. And then there's one in the middle that's important that's in our internal diagram, which is distribution and how do we organize distribution in this new universe that we don't, we don't know yet. So that's a piece that is of interest as well. So, but for example, you would obviously put together some kind of list of all the professors that teach that subject and try and inform them of your platform? Sure, yeah. Um, but I think ideally, you know, ideally if this approach is to take off, you need to have a place to go where you can find the books that are openly licensed. Um, it's like a shop, yeah. an online yeah. shop. Yeah, or, a, or a library. Library, yeah, library. So, you know, putting all that stuff, for instance, on the Internet Archive, which is what we do with LibriVox, is, is a way to, to approach it. So we'll probably end up doing something like that. So. Internet Archive dot... Uh, what is it? It's archive.org. Archive.org, okay. Okay. So one of my inspirations, speaking of archive.org, is uh, Brewster Kale, who gave a talk sort of just before I started LibriVox and was a big influence on that, and it was that we have the capability to make all human knowledge accessible to anyone in the world for free if we want to do it, and wouldn't it be great if we did? And that's something that's... Um, that driven yeah. yeah. And I think, I guess just to head off some of the questions, I think it's very different. You know, it's, a, it's a different story if we're talking about artistic output versus how to become a plumber or how to become a good heart surgeon. Right. Um, there's a lot of value in having how to become a heart surgeon content available for, well, <laughs> maybe that's a bad choice, but, <laughs> but I think we can understand the value of education being low cost. And that's a little bit different than should a poet get paid for, for the work they do. So. Right, okay. So what we're talking about basically is entirely sort of online, digital, electronic, right? So I've always believed that there's going to be space for paper, um, that the paper format of a book does things that other formats don't do. So. Pressbooks, which is kind of a piece of this ecosystem, outputs PDFs that are ready to go to printers, and we, and lots of our users, whether they be the educational institutions or individual authors, use Pressbooks um, to to send their files to the printer that gets made into paper versions of the book. So, I think paper continues to be important. 
all our actual activity is digital and online, but but paper remains um, an important format, I think, for, for books going forward, in my opinion. Good, because that's where I'm headed. I, the reason that I, I contacted you again was because of an article that you have pinned to your Twitter feed mm -hmm. called Why Can't We Read Anymore? Basically, what you're saying is that online reading, way too many distractions and temptations to check your email and Twitter and we're addicted to that because it's like an actual physical dopamine hit when someone likes whatever you're doing. Yes, so... That, that summarizes it? Is there anything else? Yeah, I think the distinction that I would put that's critical is that reading online or digital reading doesn't need... could be built in a way, or let me be more abstract, the things we're doing with digital applications could be built in a way to generate more focus and more um, good outcomes in our lives. If you look at particularly, I guess, the two platforms, let's say Facebook and Twitter, and then I will add email in there. Yeah. Although email's kind of Email's kind of worse in some ways, but it's a little bit different. But let's take Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are companies whose job it is to make sure that you spend as much time as possible on their platforms yeah. and look at the ads that they serve you as much as possible. So their incentive is not to give you a good life or to um, help you communicate with your friends and loved ones or to learn things about the world. Their mission in life is to get you to interact with their platforms and look at their ads. And yeah, just their, their mission is to, to sell your attention to an, an advertisers. Right, and so from an engineering point of view, I don't know how many people work for Facebook. Let's say it's 20,000 people. I don't know what the number. Most of their job, essentially, is to figure out how to get people to spend more time on Facebook. And I, um, as someone who is an information junkie, was an early adopter of a lot of these social media technologies. I loved Twitter. I thought it was an amazing tool to communicate with people, to make connections with people all over the place. I just had this realization that between Twitter and Facebook and email, that I was having trouble just focusing on anything for any long period of time, whether that was at work or reading. Um, and I just had this sense that I kept spending time doing things that I didn't understand why I would want to be doing those things. And the insight, I guess, was just this recognition that part of that is because there are a bunch of very well-paid people who have a huge data set, which is how how people are interacting with Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is, trying to figure out how to make more of that happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be spending all my time on Twitter or Facebook. So it was just kind of a, a recognition that all of this stuff was really, felt like it was interrupting in what I felt should be a good life. And I, my strategy, and the, the thing that really made me realize it, part of it was having kids and trying to avoid playing on my phone while they were talking to me, but the other part was looking at my tally of books that I'd read and 
that's what started this process was I had read four books the previous year and I'm not the most voracious reader but probably normally would read a couple of books a month and I had read four and I tried to figure out why that was and I realized that just all this digital stuff was happening and by the time I sat down to start reading I would lose focus right away and and couldn't do it and so the article was really about partly it was about that bad thing and the other part was thinking about how valuable reading feels long-form reading feels as sort of a meditation and a time to reflect and a time to slow down mm-hmm. and so this count- time to get out of yourself exactly. into another world exactly and so the, the power that reading has been in my life and I'm talking mostly about novels and sort of serious nonfiction stuff so it was both that I wasn't doing that which in itself was bad and I wasn't getting the value that I used to get out of reading and these two things sort of became very clear to me that there was a problem here and the article was about trying to think about how to how to get myself out of this and how to start reading again partly because I like reading but also partly because I think it helps just build more um, focus and and uh, you know it, it's not diff- very different than meditating or different things that other people do and I don't really care for yoga I prefer to be reading than doing yoga so yeah well it's why also, wasn't I doing it and that was it's the, also about learning it's also about absolutely un- understanding the world better absolutely so there's all of that as well and the experience I get when reading novels that I love is unlike just about any other media experience in my life yeah yeah. Uh, it's a richer, deeper, more valuable experience for me. And I don't think that has to be true for everyone in the world, but it's true for me. And it's funny, I got criticized in that article um, by people saying, well, you say, why can't we read anymore? It should be, why can't you read anymore? Which is totally true, but the article was for people who wish they were reading more. If you don't wish that, then you don't... <laughs> well, it sure spoke to me anyway. Yeah. And I think, you know, the interesting thing about the dopamine is... You know the people that are running Facebook and Twitter, and they know that it's the reason it's so time-consuming and brilliant for them is that it it meets a, this human need to be liked or to be popular or to to get feedback and interaction, you know, and acknowledgement and recognition. All of these things that are important to us. Yeah. That we get that that in little spurts, and the other one is being enraged. People love to be enraged. Actually, the biggest amount of sharing and engagement is with infuriating things. Um, so kind of and, venting. Yeah, and your your point. They know absolutely what they're doing because that's their business model. And if you imagine what Facebook is, it's a giant data set of every single thing that I've ever done on that platform and you've ever done and they know if I show you this you're going to do that and that's what they spend all their time doing is optimizing to get us to do this or that Okay. and so again part of this there was some follow ups that I didn't end up writing but was you know just thinking about how can we as a society as technologists as people thinking of building things, how can we start building things that try to do something different and try to improve people's... Well, to try to do things that aren't exploitative, which is what Facebook is. And try to do things that help people, I don't know, it sounds a bit highfalutin, but live the lives they wish they were leading rather than 
distracting them away from the lives they wish they were leading. So, mm -hmm. and, and when I think about, again, one of the reasons that you suggested for why it would be interesting to talk was just how does, how does all my work with digital books coincide with this anti-digital message and, and it's that I believe that we can use digital technologies to build richer and better experiences rather than more distracting ones right. and we haven't done a very good job of that and so uh, that's one of the things that I'm interested in trying to help with and why an open reading platform allows us to think about building different kinds of experiences than the ones that we have to date. Okay. So that, that brings us to your solution, which was simply to turn it all off, leave your phone, your tablet, uh, in another room, go to your bedroom or wherever you read, your study, and just have time alone with the book. And I should mention that that was mostly still with the digital book, so it was still a, a Kindle. Yeah, that, that's my next question. I hate reading off a screen. Mm -hmm. I've tried the Kindle. I hate it. Now, maybe that's just my generation. Maybe that's just because I grew up reading a book, and when my generation dies off, this isn't going to be so important. What do you think? I'm not quite sure. So if you'd asked me that five years ago, I would say, yep, it's, it's exactly what you're saying. But actually, no, it's more than five years ago. When was so 2009, 2010, 2011? This is when, I don't know if you followed this at the time, but there was a graph that went around the ebook growth curve and it was, you know, every quarter at every conference you go to, showing to show the graph and it was going up and up and up and up. And we could project out, you know, three or four years that it was going to be more than 50% of reading was going to be digital and then it was going to go to 90% and what happens then. What ended up happening was it plateaued out at about 20% and I'm talking about trade, um, trade publishing, so novels and nonfiction and whatnot. Yeah. So I don't think paper goes away. I do think that part of that plateauing is, is plateauing at twenty percent for the last yeah, and 10 maybe years declining so? a little bit. But let's say maybe five years. So it just hasn't it hasn't changed much in the last number of years, and that growth curve just kind of flattened out. Yes. So I think that part of it is that the or this is a theory that the platforms that were provided so Kindle you actually don't get very much value out of that compared to reading a paper book. It's convenient, uh, it's sometimes cheaper, but a lot of times not. Um, it's easy to carry it around. You can have 30 books on the go instead of carrying them around. So there's a, a number of, of sort of access benefits, but the rest of what digital might be able to help with um, is not really present there. And the sort of things that interest me are annotation, note-taking, finding ways to get deeper into content, and while you can do that in these platforms, they haven't really done very much. Okay, here's the thing. With all this annotating and sort of hyperlinks and note-taking and all that, just wait for that. <laughs> and that. When I'm reading, I'll go through a chapter, I'll take an, I'll jot, I'll obviously underline what's interesting to me, I'll make tick, I'll make a note of this and that in a notebook maybe, but usually not. And if I've got any words that I don't know the meaning of, I'll underline them, tick that, and then go to that, 
uh, dictionary at the end of the chapter, typically. If you are saying that you can do this all electronically, I, maybe there's a temptation to click on that hyperlink and whatever. That's going to screw up your reading experience. So what I would say is it's easy to imagine a digital reading system that says, don't bother me. I don't want, I don't want to be able to do sure. anything. I don't right. want my email notifications to come up. I don't want to be able to access the internet when I'm reading. I just want this thing. But I want to be able to highlight something. And when I go back to that, that is somewhere else. Or you've made a collection of those words that you want to look up and maybe, again, whether you want this or not is a question, but maybe you go back to that list and the system has found definitions for you that you can read now. You might say the way to learn how, what the definition of a word is, is to actually flip through the dictionary and find it, and that's going to stick in your brain more. Fair enough. But the, the point is that the sorts of things that annoy people about digital don't have to be there if we build things that don't enable those annoying things. And it's exactly this notion, like how would we design a digital reading system that helps you read more deeply rather than hurts that activity. What right. would that look like? And that's what's interesting to me. And then there's, you know, there's a question about, again, the screen versus paper. I, I'm trying to figure out why I hate reading on the screen. Because, you know, the words are the same. They're typically the same, uh, same size. They're, they can be. They've got the same color. There's something about it that I don't like, and I don't. I'm, I haven't really been able to put my finger on what it is. Yeah, and it, it may be that that's just will be the truth forevermore. I made the transition many years ago, and just much prefer reading digital. And I get annoyed when I read paper now. But but I'm that's not sure you're an engineer, maybe. Maybe, but I'm not sure that you know, the question of whether young people will adopt digital, I'm not sure that there's much evidence that that's happening. I think, from what I understand, younger people prefer paper more than digital in the same rates that older people do. So, But for me, the interest is, for those of us who like reading dig digitally, can we build a better system that encourages deep reading, or deeper reading, rather than just being digital and distracting? Right. So what you're saying then is that so the publishing industry as it, as it is today doesn't really have that much to be concerned about when it comes to digital sort of overtaking the way they currently do business. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of set at this 20% mark. Yeah, I think the, the broader worry is what are the overall business lines looking like? And my understanding, you what's, know, what's that sales, mean? like are sales increasing? Are more people buying books or fewer people buying books? So I think the problem is that becomes a stable 20% in the shrinking pie of what people are spending their time and money on. Oh yes, because of their, the, the, the competition from all these TV series and Netflix and... Exactly. So, I mean, basically, you know, if I went from, let's say, 20 books a year to four books a year, that's happening in a lot of people, and, and, and I'm certainly not the only one who's had that experience of buying fewer books. And so I think the broader concern for publishing is not, let me put it a different way, publishing has been hostile to 
digital, I would say, from the beginning, the publishing industry, broadly speaking. Yeah. Not everyone, but it was a challenge to their business models, a worry, an understandable worry, and there was not a huge embrace. It was there, they had to engage with it, um, but I think if you ask the average publishing executive or person who works at a publishing house about digital, they'll probably say, we don't really like it that much. And the question is that I would have is, is there a way for that to be helping grow publishing, grow reading, to, grow yeah, to diminish the you know the the appeal not diminish the appeal of watching videos or <laughs> listening to podcasts or whatever's uh, whatever's competing with reading, right? Yeah, and how can we use the digital tools to make um, to make reading more broadly accessible? And I think you know if I look at um, the things I've done, it's how do we make you know, just books more available and more accessible and that that is a mechanism by which you can grow the people who are interested in books and reading. Right. And have people engaged in different ways in books and reading. You know, I look at LibriVox and there is a way you could look at that and say that it's great because it's made this great big library of free public domain audiobooks for people to access that wasn't there before. Let's, sorry, let's just look at that. That's, you said there's about eleven or 12,000 titles. Yeah. How many does Audible have? How many titles? Hugely more. Like I mean, 10, more. 20, 30? I think the last time I would have checked, which was a few years ago, would have been uh, in the, it was 120,000 or something, and right. it's probably now. But your competition to them. But they're professional readers, and yours are not professional. Well, they're, they're at the professional level. But some of them are, yeah. some of them aren't. So, always when I've thought about LibriVox from the beginning, because people always thought it was weird and crazy that people would spend time on it, I've always thought of soccer as a good kind of analogy. You know, do you think the fact that kids play soccer for free in the park, is that hurting or helping professional soccer globally? My answer is it helps it. And I think LibriVox is a similar kind of thing. It's true that someone might get a LibriVox book instead of an Audible book, but if you want to listen to Harry Potter, you're not going to find it on LibriVox. So it's probably a way to get people into listening to audiobooks for yeah, free. Yeah, that, that, that habit. Yeah, and then they might be happy to do lots of free listening, but you know we're pretty the, constrained in the content that's available. Exactly, it's only uh, uh, out of uh, copyright. Exactly, it's yeah. only books that are out of copyright, which functionally basically is anything before 1923, so because okay. uh, of the U.S. copyright laws. The, the other thing I would say is that actually what's more interesting to me about LibriVox is less that there's this giant catalog of books to listen to and more that thousands of people have had the pleasure and the experience of sitting down to read a text aloud for the public and share that, that actually is a mechanism by which that person is engaging far more deeply with the text than they would otherwise. Yeah, and they're doing it for the public good, which is a beautiful motivation. Doing it for the public good and their own satisfaction and, and because they like it and it's fun, but, but fundamentally, we joke about it in, in the LibriVox community, or I always did, that, that the fact that there's a great big library of free audiobooks for anyone to use is kind of a nice fringe benefit of what we're actually doing, which is helping people make audio recordings themselves yeah, of right. texts. You know, it's just like that isn't a crazy 
it's a crazy way to look at it if your prism is commercial or how many units did we move or whatever, but that, that's never been what's interested, interesting to me. What's interesting is how can people engage more deeply with books in a way that I would like to engage more deeply with books. Right. Okay, just so let's just finally look at uh, one of the mandates that I've set for my podcast is to sort of document the book. So interview all sorts of different people who are connected to the book or, and work in different, have different functions connected to producing a book. Yeah. So your goal is to get more people engaged deeply in the reading and appreciation of books and benefiting from it. Let's say you were the head of a, a publishing firm right now, had unlimited resources. What would you do? I think it's a very hard question because, so that puts me in the place of thinking as a business person who is trying to no, not maximize. No, no, don't worry about that. You got all the money in the world. So the thing that's more interesting to me than people reading books okay. is people writing books. And the thing that's more interesting than people listening to audiobooks is people making audiobooks. I believe that the Create. act of creation yeah. is, a, is the most fulfilling thing you can do as a human being. Exactly. And that for me, making books has always been of the creative things one could do. That is the thing that has always been most important for me. So I think as a head of the publishing house with as much money as I would ever want and no worries about returns on investment, I think I would be thinking in that direction. And it's funny because, well, Kindle Direct Publishing and, you know, the various self-publishing platforms have kind of made, you know, if you want to write a book, you can write a book. Yeah, and publish it easily. And publish it easily. No, no one may know about it, but... No one may know about it. So it's interesting trying to think about, like, what would that look like of things that I'm not already doing and you know if I was head of Random House and, and the shareholders didn't care what I did it, yeah, it's a very hard question to answer because in some sense you know I could have gone the route of going into the traditional publishing business I'm not sure how successful I would have been but that is a direction I could have gone and instead I've taken a route that says how do we rebuild and model new different models of publishing so at the end of the day I kind of am that person. I've made a space in my professional life to be that person and I'm doing the things that I, th I think I ought to be doing. I don't have unlimited resources but building out these new models and technologies is exactly what I would be doing and I guess I'm trying to do them as best as I can. Well that's great you know because I mean you know someone wants to know what they should be doing with their life. Well then just imagine that you're hugely wealthy, what would you do? Mm. And if you're already doing it right now, well, then you're, <laughs> you're yeah. on the right track. And, and Frank, you know, my objective in life is exactly to, and I don't know exactly why or what the <laughs> Freudian psychology is or whatever, but it's to try to build out this open model for publishing and see what happens. Because I think part of it was LibriVox was just kind of this wacky idea that I had and it flowered into something amazing and it touched mm. many many people's lives and that is a you know it's sort of an addictive it's an amazing feeling lots of people helped but there was you know there's a kernel of vision there that I helped bring into the world and I'm interested in that 
in a way because it touched a lot of people's lives who never would have been in mostly in the traditional publishing business. You know, the people who got involved in, in LibriVox proper, now some of them may well be, um, but they're probably not people who would have been hired as commercial audiobook narrators, but here was a way to do this. They loved books, they loved recording. And I just, I just love that idea of helping people to create things that is meaningful to them, and even better if it's meaningful to, to other people more broadly. And that's kind of, it's what's interesting about the open textbook stuff, which maybe wouldn't be the, you know, I, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, I wouldn't have thought that that would be a place that I would be going on more of a literary, you know, interest in the literary avenue more myself. But at the same time, there's an inherent value in an open and free textbook that is not so evident in the average self-published novel, for instance, or novel broadly speaking, you know, mm -hmm. people, lots of people publish novels and 200 people read them and half of them are friends and family members. And, and so uh, open textbook has kind of an intrinsic value of increasing the access to knowledge in the world, which, which, has a, which is kind of exciting as well. So, so if you had your druthers, then everyone would be writing a novel and getting it published? And it doesn't matter who reads it or who doesn't read yeah, it. Yeah, there'd be a lot of really crappy novels there. Yeah. But my guess is, and I, I don't know, like I don't know how you evaluate this. I've had so here's a totally on a separate track. I've had a lot of trouble reading literary fiction that's come out basically since the year 2000, and I keep I'm the trying, same with you. And um, I, and then I, you know, I pick up an old Graham Greene novel or something, and I just love every second of it, and it's yeah. thrilling and. So I don't know what my conclusion or that wasn't really an answer to a question, but yeah, I, I yeah. guess I would think that if more people are writing, then more great books should be coming out. Well, I think more people are writing. I don't feel like more great books are coming out, but yeah. maybe I but just have But that's the role of the publisher, isn't it? Is it yeah. Like the, be the best publishers are the ones that have to sift through all of this and identify what is great yeah. and worth spending extra time making sure that more people know about it and producing it in a beautiful way. Yeah, I just, I can't, I, I can't figure out this conundrum. I don't, but I'm just not, not sure what the reason is of the difficulty of finding the literary it's, novels that I love now. And maybe it's, as you get older, you're less open, I don't know. But so. Well, it's, I had this very conversation, like, within the past week. And it's, I'm wondering if I'm becoming a curmudgeonly old man because I find the quality of almost everything uh, literary to just not be at, at a, a level that excited me the way it did when I first started reading the Russians. And here's, here's my theory, is that there is a path to become a writer it's very comfortable and you do your MFA and then you become a writer and you get jobs teaching writing and you don't actually have to have lived a life anymore mm -hmm. in the way that it seems to me writers used to live lives. Well, Dostoevsky faced a firing squad. Yeah. I'm sure there are lots of writers who would tell me I'm full of shit because they have lived painful and complicated lives, but that's just kind of the general feeling I get. I mean, you don't have to write autobiographically, no. but on the other hand, some great writers have fantastic imaginations, and they haven't, you know, like Emily Dickinson didn't live much of a life, but she produced some very powerful poetry. There's something about the wisdom, I don't know, I, I have, 
an ongoing struggle to try to figure out why this problem is. And I keep trying to read literary books that I'm supposed to like and not like. <laughs> so, yeah. so anyway, my, my, the point that I wanted to make is I have a theory that if more people are writing books, then there will be more great books out there. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe there's enough great books in the past that we're never going to read them all anyway, so the accumulation of recent books is just going to continue happening. I don't want to prolong this topic too much because I don't want to come across as, again, kind of grumbling. But all of the hype around all of these books is it's just so much bullshit. <laughs> you, you know, these are all supposed to be really good, captivating, quote, compelling yeah. riveting whatever it is and it's just that's bullshit I don't know it's it's, it's a business as well right so okay I don't want to I don't want to end on that note <laughs> yeah right is there a positive note that you yeah. want to end on I think so I think if you look at digital and I say digital mainly the web and sort of what came let's say after the year 2000 we've had less than 20 years to figure out how to do this right and we've, done, we've made a lot of mistakes, and I think people are starting to realize that more. And so I think there is room for digital to be helping people to engage more with the things in their lives they want to engage with. I think that's a space that um, is very interesting and should excite people who are interested in digital and technology. And the place that I choose to try to explore this is around books, and I think... I'm very excited. If you talked to me two or three years ago, I would have been very frustrated with the universe and we found a little path through sort of academic, the academic world that is continuing to struggle with these. We found foundations who are interested in funding. I was going to say, yeah, who funds you? Two funders, main funders. Uh, one is the Hewlett Foundation and they're very interested in open education issues. And so that's from the Hewlett Packard family yeah. of people and then the Andrew Mellon Foundation and Mellon is interested in a lot of different areas but one area is scholarly communications and how and digital humanities and how digital and scholarship can intersect better um, so again it's been a pretty circuitous route to get to a place where people can pay me money to mm -hmm. explore these ideas and it's very exciting to be there now and I think um, you know I don't know that we're going to come up with all the solutions or any solutions, but it's very exciting to have the opportunity to, to try and to think about these issues. Yeah. Okay. So I'm happy. Well, and the other thing too is that uh, while you're doing that, there are still uh, companies out there that, are, that do a fabulous job of, uh, of identifying important authors. I'm thinking of you know, Faber and, and FSG, uh, most recently, that, you know, because I've been, I've been talking to them. And uh, just when I was at your offices, so we picked up a book by Robert Bringhurst, published yep. by Gasparo Press. I love that book, that little yep. book. It's, I just can't get my hands off it, yep. or keep my hands off it. And uh, that's going on now as well, in parallel. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's a time when it's never been easier to be a publisher. It's probably never been harder to be a publisher as well, but it's it's a time when lots of great stuff is still happening, um, despite my complaints about literary fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing I would say is that that, I would say, is mostly focused on North American literary fiction, and you pick up books from elsewhere in the world, and there is a flowering of 
of literary stuff happening everywhere. And I think that's a place where we can see growth and interest and discover new things. So, uh, you know, I would I be optimistic about the publishing industry? I don't know if I'm optimistic about the publishing industry. I'm certainly optimistic about the book. The book will be fine. And I've been saying this for a number of years. The publishing industry, who knows what happens to it, but people will still publish books and people still read books. I have no doubt about that. And long may it continue, I guess. And I'll still have my notebook too. I love I love writing with a pen. I I just love that. It's like soccer. All you need is a pen and a yeah. piece of paper, yeah. and anyone can do it. Yeah. So indeed, uh, I do all my thinking like that. Yeah, and then you you refine your thinking with a yeah. keyboard. Now maybe that's our generation, but I don't know. I think there's a lot of. I mean, I think that's the important thing. That. There's. There are reasons why this is works, and it's not just you can't just swap one media out for another. So, yeah. um, I think the you know the tactileness does something to your thinking process. So. Super. Well, uh, thanks very much for. Uh, All right. Well, thank you. I'm glad you reached out, and I'm glad you're still at it. It's good to see some of the uh, old faces of. Um, you know, from the early days when I got engaged with this stuff, it's nice to see people still doing interesting stuff. And you know, we're gonna fight the good fight and keep going. And do it for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I, as I, I'm sure you will be too. So. I hope so. Yeah. I've been speaking with uh, Hugh McGuire in a noisy little. What is this place again? Uh, we should get a product placement for your podcast, but it's yeah. a breather space, which is supposed to be a quiet small comfortable office that you can rent for an hour or two um, where it's quiet and peaceful but unfortunately the one I chose was uh, inside of a cafe or at the back end of a cafe so it's a little bit uh, louder than I would have liked so my apologies for that no problem uh, let's just get a few of these uh, website addresses for right. uh, LibriVox yeah L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X dot org and Pressbooks. Pressbooks, P-R-E-S-S-B-O-O-K-S dot com. And the Rebus Foundation. Yes, it's Rebus, R-E-B-U-S dot foundation. That's it? That's it. Very good. Okay, well, thanks again, Keith. All right, thank okay. you. Okay.